0: Hey, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by CraneShares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN. Now to the top analysis of today's markets.
1: What is the options market trying to tell us? Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, July 10, 2023. I'm Ash Bennington, in for Maggie Lake today. I'm joined today by Imran Laka, founder of Options Insight. Imran, always a pleasure when you join us. Good to see you, Ash. Lots to talk about here. Listen, but first, I want to talk about something near and dear to my heart. We're kicking off our big five-day crypto gathering at Real Vision. It starts today, Monday, July 10th. The big question is this. Is it game on? Uh, That's the question we're looking at trying to assess the current state of the crypto markets. We'll be hosting interactive sessions like daily Twitter spaces discord hangouts dgen happy hour and a bunch of other stuff i'm going to be hosting some of those i'm excited about that you're going to see a lot of ral too of course ral's been saying think of it as a mini glastonbury if you want to check this out it's all free at realvision.com forward slash gathering that's realvision.com forward slash gathering with that said imran always enjoy having you on the show U.S. equities, especially tech, have been on fire year-to-date. We had a little bit of softening last week. What's the big picture? How do you see it?
2: Well, it's all about yields. This is something we talked about uh, last time we appeared on Real Vision with Andreas. It's like, if you're going to get about a volatility in markets, it's going to be driven by rates vol. And generally, rates vol is going to go up when rates go higher. Um, so we definitely saw a little attempt at that last week. Some pretty hot economic data. Um, thankfully, non-farms wasn't blowout as well because then probably it would have pushed even further. Uh, so things stabilised a bit on Friday. But in general, most of the equity market getting taken down by higher yields. Ten-year p- pushing above four um, percent. The five, to be fair, the two-year went above five, but it's pu- pulled back. Um, so so it definitely has retraced a little bit off its sort of local high. Um, but you know, and the equity market has stabilised as well today. Uh, all eyes on the CPI number on Wednesday, really. Uh, I don't think it's a massive one in terms of uh, generally we've been seeing disinflationary data. Um, so this is likely to still continue that trend before the base effects kick in. Um, and if you look at the implied moves on the S&P for this week, for, the, for that data, it's less than a percent. So the market isn't really expecting or anticipating this number to really move things that materially.
1: Yeah, i look at the... Five day charts right now in US Treasury yield, right now trading at four spot eight seven two. Uh 10 year treasury, really close to four flat 4.008% 10-year treasury yield currently.
2: Yeah, the um the Fed probability now for a hike in July, and I guess this CPI data is going to kind of seal it, um, is is around 92%, which is why the market's not pricing that this data point's gonna be that big a game changer because the pricing for the Fed meeting is already close to 100%. So there shouldn't be that big marginal change in expectations.
1: What's the Fed pricing? I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but for two rate hikes, obviously there's been a lot of talk uh, in financial services circles about the risks of two hikes, uh, or I should say a a double hike, 50 basis points.
2: Yeah, I think it's around 30% chance uh, that we're going to get two more hikes, right? So that's kind of, uh, so the markets, you know, they've been, if you look at the dot plot and what the, what the what the Fed members have been saying, yeah, you know, they're they're pretty much saying that's that's their expectation. But the, the market still refuses to really price that in fully. Um, so they kind of want to see the data on that. Um, but you know, uh, no reason to really think that, that that through time that's not going to decay towards what they are guiding uh, at the moment.
1: Well, you know, talking about that decay, when you see the 2s-10s curve upside down, as we were just talking about, uh, around 87 basis points, I'm just eyeballing it here. Uh, The implication, obviously, is that we're going to get a hike, and then based on the uh, interest rate probability, and then we're going to get cuts following that. How do you think about that?
2: Well, I mean, it's a lot lot less cuts than were priced a couple of months ago, right? Gradually, we've been pricing more and more cuts out of the curve as the data has been coming in much stronger, no sign of a recession yet and the Fed speak has been decidedly hawkish. So right. that's just been, you know, the, the, there's this muscle memory to the market. First sign of trouble, everyone thinks they're going to cut. And that's what happened back in March, where they just put in so many cuts into the curve, thinking, okay, this is it. They've already broken something, and it's the regional banks. But now the data has continued to be okay, and the regional banks, whilst clearly there's problems, you know, that, that, that seems to have... Um, been to some extent to some extent kind of backstopped by what the Fed did Um, so for now it's game on in equities let alone crypto
1: (laughs) yeah talk about that I was uh, talking earlier with Raoul uh, about where we are right now in terms of year to date on crypto Uh, the numbers are blowout obviously uh, from this rally that we've seen relative to Uh, for example, even uh, S and P 500, Nasdaq Composite, Nasdaq 100, seriously outperforming on digital assets. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm generally a bull. Um, I think that that crypto market has taken so much of a beating last year, and and really, you know, it got to a a stage where just all the bad news was was out. You would have thought, right? I mean, you couldn't get much worse news, Uh, and now you've had the big boys come in, uh, the likes of obviously. Fidelity, Citadel, Schwab, all these guys now coming in uh, with EDX markets and BlackRock with their with their ETF application to the SEC. That generally if they're going to do that the odds are they're going to get it approved at some point. That's that's what the market seems to think now. So I right. do think it's a great sign of institutional adoption really coming back in a big way and, and that was hmm. the main driver right back in late 2020 early 21 when we really went to, when we went to the moon on that thing, it was because of the institutional adoption story. And that, that really got shaken last year with all the scandals right. that were going on. And now it looks like that's coming back. And, and there's a bit of a purge going on where the, the TradFi guys are coming in and saying, okay, we want our share of this pie. And, and the, that we're going to give them a vehicle to adopt this stuff. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that narrative is going to stay in place. And you've certainly seen in the crypto options market, longer dated upside, catching a firm bid, skew flipping towards calls and staying there, particularly in the longer-term maturities. So that that suggests this bull narrative plus the halving that's due in March next year, that bull narrative right. in Bitcoin I don't think is going anywhere.
1: Yeah, and by the way, this rally started uh, prior to the EDX markets uh, and BlackRock ETF announcement. Listen, rather than eyeball it, I just want to read it on my screen right now, right off my Bloomberg, uh, just to give you a sense of where we are in terms of percent change year to date. Uh, S&P 500 year to date up about 15%. uh, NASDAQ composite up about 30%. NASDAQ 100 up nearly 38%. Ethereum up 58, call it 59%, 58.8%. Bitcoin up year-to-date almost
2: 87.5%. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, the, the thing is, a lot of people still don't want to touch the crypto space. And obviously, they got shaken out from last year's volatility. But right. the, if you look at the volatility in crypto, it's been surprisingly low, right, for most of this year. So that the, when vol does drop, I mean, there's been times where crypto vol's been less than S&P vol, not many times. But there have been times I like realized right now in Bitcoin on a one week basis, like 30%. That's, that's, that's a normal equity type vol, right? That's not, that's not crazy. So, you know, that type of low vol for long periods of time will make institutional players feel more comfortable. Obviously, the correlation between equities and crypto has fallen dramatically as well. So it acts as a, that, that's a positive for people to want to adopt it as well, because it acts as a diversifier in portfolios, things like that. If you believe If you believe in it, that it's not going away, and it has some value owning it, the fact that it's got negative correlation to equities is is a good thing for your portfolio generally.
1: Yeah, of course, that declining volatility may not last. Uh, We may be having a a different conversation if the history on that asset class uh, comes back again to haunt us. Listen, talking about assets and cross volatility, this is something that you think a lot about. Uh, Walk us through your cross asset volatility thesis right now.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, so generally, we've seen volatility come down across all asset classes for a while. We had a, we had a little bit of a pop back up uh, last week. Uh, we have this cross asset vol and skew matrix where we also keep an eye on skew to see not the absolute levels of vol kind of tell you about the market's expectation for realized volatility, but that could go in either direction. When you look at the skew, it gives you a sense for whether One direction or the other is being given a risk premium, right? So, generally in equities, you have a risk premium to the downside. So, the puts will trade above the calls. And in things like commodities, you often have it the other way with calls trade over. So, in general, we've seen equity skew come down pretty hard, get to very, very cheap levels, like zero percentile type levels on a two year horizon. And last week, they pushed back up a little bit, but they do still have room to go before they get anywhere near their even median levels, let alone their highs. So that's kind of the green dots moving back uh, towards the right. Uh, and then in, in commodity skew, where you did see a decent amount of cool skew in gold and silver and things like that earlier in the year when those things were really having a go at their highs, because the way they've pulled back with real yields coming higher, gold coming back down towards 1900, that cool skew's disappeared again. So you've got a much more flat skew in gold, similar in bonds as well, the skew in treasuries is is very flat. So what they're saying is as the vol's coming down, they're saying that the shock can come in either direction in those assets. So it's a much more symmetrical surface, which we call a smile. But in equities, there still is a skew. In Asian equities, there's not that much of a skew. Nikkei, China, they don't have much of a much of an equity skew. But then when you look to Europe, you look to the US, they, they definitely still have a put skew. And they kind of Generally, they always will have. It's just a question of how much it is.
1: We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision daily briefing. Imran, for folks who are relatively new to options, let's walk them through why that is the case. Is that predominantly because it's a hedge for long positions on US equities?
2: Sure. So we cover this in our, in our course on your platform. Um, so I definitely urge people to check that out Uh, because we cover it in much more detail. But the reason why SKU exists in equities is uh, primarily because people are long stocks and they want to hedge them. So they have a natural demand for want to buy downside puts. And they're actually willing to sell calls against their holdings because they own the stock anyway. So they can afford Mm -hmm. to sell some calls to cheapen up the cost of their protection. So you get a natural supply of calls, supply of upside, demand for downside, and that creates this bold premium for puts above calls. But then you also have empirical evidence that whenever markets tend to go down, they tend to go down much more violently. And when they go up, they tend to grind up as well. And so right. just, just looking at that statistically and how the returns going back decades, you know that, that is something that market participants in options want to price in because that right. is generally how things turn out.
1: Yeah, this is the uh, old cliche, stairs up, elevator down. Exactly. Hey, listen, thinking about uh, things that are broadly held uh, here in the United States, we've got earnings this week starting for banks. I believe it's JPM and Citi on Friday. I want to talk a little bit about European banks because we have a great conversation with Shamas Murphy, founder and managing director of Cargill. uh, Speaking with uh, Harry Melandry, advisor for MIT Partners. This is out on the essential tier today. Uh, It's called The Next Big Trade. Is it time for European banks to shine? Let's take a look at this conversation.
0: You know, certainly we could still see, you know, in Europe, is it impossible to see, you know, another 100, uh, 200 basis points, maybe even more of rates relative to where we are today. And I think the market is basically expecting rates to fall into 2024. Um, We think that's highly improbable, highly, highly improbable once the central banks begin to understand the narrative of the fact that there is this excess demand still exists. And we still haven't had an adjustment in coverage ratios. Let's not forget, Harry. I mean, even for interest to flow through the economy, does take a long, long time, because you know, for example, you know, you have a fixed-rate mortgage in, in Europe and Germany for 20 years. You only reset once every 20 years. I mean, you're you're still paying. You're still you're completely insensitive to the rate curve. Um, so, I mean, this does take a while to flow through. One of the countries actually where we believe rates actually could be significantly and have been, you know, quite bearish is actually the UK. Um, right. we, we think the UK is actually a bit of a unique situation. Um, we haven't been long. UK banks, um, UK banks, we feel, are a bit of a value trap because we feel um, the UK actually has, uh,
1: has a lot more work to do than Europe
0: and the US on the upside. I uh, see. So unique in a bad way, not in a good way.
1: Well, Seamus Murphy obviously bearish on UK banks. I have to say, Imran, this is right in your backyard. What are your thoughts?
2: Well, I mean, it's funny that you that you chose this clip today because in my daily note today, uh, one of the headlines <laughs> I wrote was "Everyone hates UK assets." So, so if you bring up our strategy compass, uh, Brian, don't mind. Um, so we run this we we run this process where we do this strategy compass where we get a handle on where the spot levels are overbought, oversold, where volatility is in its kind of percentile ranges to get a sense for, from a mean reversion perspective, is there anything that's standing out as particularly stretched? So the idea is if you, if you are far away from the center of this kind of dartboard, if you want to call it, or this target, then the, the, the probability that you're going to move a bit more towards the middle is, is fairly high, unless the market is just going through a major breakout and it just doesn't look back. OK, so um, but generally the twos and throws of the market, you, this mean reversion model certainly picks up some opportunities. So right now, the UKX FTSE um, index is standing out as kind of the most oversold. Um, volatility levels have popped off their lows. So, you know, FTSE vol's generally got as low as the single digits. Um, they've had a little pop to like 12 ish now, uh, which isn't crazy high. But in the context of what the FTSE does, it is higher, uh, but what we flagged was actually, um, whilst everyone hates sort of UK bonds and UK stocks right now, uh, you look at the currency, it's actually doing okay. And the reason the currency is doing okay is obviously because the Bank of England is under pressure to fight inflation that just isn't going away basically, right? So the fact that the rates expectations keep going higher and higher in the UK and they surprised with a 50-bit hike last time that the market wasn't expecting, that's been good for the pound. So now, whereas last year, um, with all that debacle around what happened with the trust government, you had bad outlook for UK economy plus bad outlook outlook for the currency. And the UK was trading more like an emerging market. This time around, you've had currency strength coupled with weakness in other assets. So things like the e, EWU, which is like the UK ETF, the MSCI UK stocks, but the ETF is in dollars, that has actually traded much better than say the FTSE, because the FTSE is in local currency and doesn't benefit from the fact that the pound's got stronger. So the EWU, right. we're, we're looking at potential sort of bullish expressions on the EWU to just play a bit of a bounce in the UK, because we do think it's it's very consensus that no one, no one wants to touch it. Um, and we just think it's sitting, technically it's sitting on like the 200-day moving average right now, that EWU uh, ETF. It's got some bullish divergences showing up. Obviously we've shown that the UK in general looks quite oversold, so we're looking at potential option trades that could play a bounce there. It's not—it's not something we thinks a long term theme by any means, but we do think tactically it's pretty beaten up and everyone hates it. So, you know, like like our, like our good friend Jared Dillion, who, who's the sentiment trader who likes to fade crowded sentiment, uh, we think there might be some value in playing it from that perspective.
1: Yeah, Imran, we've got some questions coming in fast and thick from our viewers. Well, what do you say? I want to hit some of these. Let's do it. All right, fantastic. Listen, if you're out there and you're watching on the platform in the chat, if you're watching on YouTube, please drop your questions in. And of course, smash the like button and hit subscribe. We're obviously committed to providing this kind of amazing free content to you. And we appreciate you hitting the subscribe button. Our first one comes to us from Is This It on YouTube? Does Imran have any thoughts on the UK housing market, sticking with the theme? Assuming he's out there, their mortgage rate picture has been a hot topic recently.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty frightening, but I mean, literally, though. Like, but every it's one of those, again, it's one of those things like every headline you see on the housing market is this thing's going to crash another 10, 15 percent. Right. So the pro- whilst the structure of the market is pretty poor because of the two year fixed rate mortgages uh, that, are, that have to be rolled. And, you know, we're talking about rolling 400 basis points higher than your last fix. It's pretty scary for most consumers. So clearly it is a concern. Um it's just a matter of how much of it is priced in. And that's always the hard thing to tell, right? Um, but, but yeah, I, I wouldn't, I mean, it's funny. I, it's, not, it's not an easy time for anyone to sell a house right now. Yeah, anyone I know who's trying to sell a house in the UK is seriously struggling and, and they're, they're having to bring their prices down. And so it is a reality right now. And, and the, the, the the notorious thing about housing is it's so damn illiquid, right? It's just you, you don't want to cross that, 20% bid offer spread, right? So people need to be really desperate to sell to actually trade it at those levels. So right now they're walking down their offers, but they're not hitting bids. We'll see if they get desperate enough in the next 12 months that they actually start hitting bids. Cause that's when it will, that's when it will really you know, come down hard, right? So back in, back in 2008, I remember the thing that saved the housing market was the currency devaluation, right? And you had a load of rich, you had a load of very wealthy foreigners who wanted to bring money to the UK, and UK property just got haircut massively because of what the currency did for them. You don't have that support anymore, which is quite concerning.
1: Okay, coming back to this side of the pond, Ralph Humphrey, one of our regular viewers here at Real Vision. What are Imran's thoughts on the VIX? Lower for longer or back up?
2: Good question. Um, So the VIX has been incredibly heavy, right, for quite some time. And we've been calling a lower VIX from earlier in the year, for those of you who have been kind of keeping in touch with what we've been saying. Um, Now, it did have a little pop last week, briefly touched 17. Um, There's been a lot of call buying. So this is something I've been pointing out in in, in a lot of my content recently. It's like, as the S&P skew has got crushed, the VIX has become... A, a little bit less sensitive to S&P moves, but also as the market's rallied and the VIX are just kind of floated in this low teens level, um, it becomes more attractive to buy calls on the VIX to hedge your portfolio than buying puts on the S&P. And so you've had a lot of call buying going on in short-dated maturities on the VIX. So we had a ton in June. That obviously expired. Now we've got a hell of a lot in July as well. So anywhere from 18 to 25 strikes on the VIX been a lot of calls bought. Now, what does that mean? Dealers have to hedge that somehow. The dealers are the people who are selling those calls on the VIX. They hedge those by buying futures on the VIX. Now, as those calls, if those calls don't actually materialize and make any money because nothing untoward happens in the market, then those calls evaporate, they go away. And as they're decaying through time, the dealers who have bought VIX futures against them have to sell those VIX futures back out So the the passage of time when there's this big amount of call buying that we've seen, the passage of time actually works negatively for the VIX because these dealers have to then sell back all the VIX. And so I think that into VIX expiry next week, there is a very high likelihood if there's not some massive blow up in yields that drives equities lower again like last week, that I think the VIX will find selling pressure at least until to next Wednesday. Maybe even it'll persist into Friday with the regular OPEX. But yeah, my, my base case is probably VIX lower for now. Um, and if we do get some kind of real VIX spike at some point, um, I think it's going to be a bit further down the line once summer seasonality is gone uh, and we have, um, you know, maybe, maybe September, October time.
1: Next question comes to us from another regular viewer, Bo Nito here at Real Vision. Uh, what is Imran's take on the stubborn yield curve inversion? I should say, I think I eyeballed it correctly. Uh, twos, tens right now are at about minus 86 basis points. Uh, this has come in quite a bit from last week. We were at a, over 100 basis points, I believe.
2: Yeah, it was an amazing move. It went to like 110 and reversed back to 80, so 30 bit re steepening. People say the re-steepening yeah. is the thing you should really be you should be scared of, right? So, but I don't know. I mean, this thing's been quite noisy for like a year now. Um, I mean, you know, I people say it's got 100% track record in calling recession, but it's got no value in timing it, right? That's the problem, right? It seems that there's very right. so, and and the whole job of trading is to time stuff. So I, I don't really I don't really read too much into it. I, I keep an eye on it for sure. Um, but that latest re steepening yeah if it, if it keeps going and then may, maybe the market's going to get a bit spooked by that because typically that 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 seems to be the real signal that things are getting imminent right but the but the problem is normally the re steepening happens from the front end going down right whereas the steepening we saw last week was from the back end going up by more than the front end because the front end's kind of now anchored at wherever it is so I don't know. I just think it's a very noisy curve right now. I'm I'm not the I'm not the go-to expert in yield curve by any means. So you probably want to you probably want to ask someone like Jeff Schneider, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, n- not reading too much into it right now. Uh,
1: the next question is about the Nasdaq 100. By the way, Amarin, I think I have a 100% track record by saying the Nasdaq 100 will be higher in 10 years. I think I'm 100% on that call.
2: It's <laughs> probably pretty fair to say, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: Jay Singhalis well, uh, from YouTube. Imran, what are options getting affected by the NASDAQ 100 rebalance? He's action, in essence, are options uh, getting impacted by the NASDAQ 100 rebalance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not I'm not seeing a massive impact in the options market on that, to be honest. Um, really, earnings are going to be more, earnings are going to be more driving the vault on single stocks. So, um, you know, Generally, when you go through earnings season, short-dated implied vols are not just pricing in what the asset's doing. They're also pricing an implied move, like a, like a jump risk on earnings. And so, you know, you, you look at the vol and you can calibrate what that, what that earnings risk is. So we've got a single stock strategy compass in our, in our, in our products where we tell you we flag what the implied moves are, uh, what we're seeing. For example, there's some healthcare names that we flagged in our single stock um, compass today. Uh, earnings on Friday for United Health. they're only pricing in like a 2% move. Uh, that thing potentially if it, you know, in the past when they've had decent earnings, they've rallied 5% plus. Um, so we think it's quite cheap. So these are the things that we look at around earnings season in single names. For the rebalance, I, I, I don't see a lot of impact in bond markets.
1: All right, Imran, this is a nice technical question on options for you. I'm going to ask you to explain the question for people who may not be following along as closely as David H., who submits this question on YouTube. Can you ask Imran if he's more prone to doing one-half-year-out-of-the-money calls or doing calendar spreads if you don't want to be invested in this run? Very technical question.
2: So if you don't want to be invested in this run, I'm not sure what that exactly means, but... I mean, the question to do calendars or outright calls really boils down to how much gamma you want, right? And so, and how much decay you're willing to pay. So, you know, calendars, generally I like doing calendars when a market has corrected and I want to get long it and the curve has gone a bit inverted and I think it will recover medium term but in the super near term, I don't think it's going to have a really massive rally. So then I'll use that front end call to fund some of my medium term call to cheapen it up. Right. So that's when I would do a calendar trade, kind of the logic around that. right? I, I want to buy this thing. I want to cheapen the cost of it. And I'm pretty confident that the inversion of the curve and the strike that I'm selling in the front end call doesn't get breached, basically, because I think the market kind of needs needs to work off the weakness before it can really have a material rally. Um, in terms of just outright calls, you know, if the curve, for example, wasn't inverted and the front-end vol was just really, really cheap, it's not worth selling, then it kind of... And because you're going to a six-month outright call, you're keeping the decay down anyway. You know, you, you know It's only in the really front-end stuff that your decay bill's that bad. So I think if the implied vol levels are relatively cheap still, your front-end vol is super cheap and just not worth selling. You're just not getting much premium for selling those short-day calls. That's kind of when I'd just be in the outrights. So the kind of assets that I'd be in outright calls would be like, for example, bonds, right? TLT right now, if you want to buy calls on bonds, TLT outright calls don't look bad. HYG is another one, right? So um, the high-yield ETF, that's on like a six or seven vol, particularly on the upside, Why am I going to sell anything in front of that when I own the thing at six or seven volt, right? It's crazy cheap. So just buying that stuff outright makes sense. But in a single stock where, you know, you've got a bit of a wall of resistance at some level, 10% higher, but you're bullish on the stock, maybe it's an AI name that's pulling back or it's Google or something like that, and you like the longer term upside on Google, but the front end's pumped and it's got earnings priced in it, then using a calendar structure sets up much better.
1: Here's a question about commodities. This one comes from macro on YouTube. uh, And he asks, Imran, any views on oil and what's priced in the volatility market for it? CL1 on the New York Merck right now, WTI, August 23, crude futures uh, trading at 73.18.
2: Yeah, I mean, generally, it's been putting in some good price action oil. It looks like it's carving out a bit of a bottom. Um, Yeah, so I have been, at the margin, bullish. Um, I haven't actually pulled a trigger on an option trader. I just bought some outright oil like a week or two ago. Um, but vol's pretty low. Uh, vol's back in the 30s in oil. Skew's actually quite low as well at like two and a half uh, for the one month, 25 delta. Um, that that has traded much higher, right? It's traded at like five or something. So that that's come down quite a bit as well. But yeah, in general, I, I think outright vol doesn't look bad in oil. Uh, it's not really realizing that much right now. Um, so maybe cool spreads if you're bullish. Um, but but right now a lot of people are still bearish oil. Um, mm. you know, that they, they think the economy, particularly, you know, China's got issues. Um, if you're bearish, it's had a good run, right? It rallied, you know, 4% last week nearly. Bowls are pretty cheap, skews cheapened up as well. You you might want to buy some puts to play a tactical pullback, right? But for me, I'm looking at oil a little, a little bit more structurally, a bit more medium-term. And that makes me a bit more bullish.
1: All right, Imran, since you mentioned uh, AI, here's a final question. This comes to us from Bo Nito, and it's about AI. And the question is this, is Imran actually AI? He runs through data in his head like a supercomputer. Are you a hologram, (laughs) Imran?
2: (laughs) afraid not, I'm real. I don't know how to prove that to you, (laughs) but uh, I'm definitely real. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well you can try proving it right now final thoughts
1: key takeaways uh give us an answer that only a human could
2: well tell you what if you want to if you want to get proof that i'm real come to my free webinar that i'm running at 11 a.m eastern tomorrow so, <laughs> so we're we're going to run through some of the trades uh that we've done recently and trust me they're not all winners we're not going to bullshit you we're going to tell you about our losers and our winners Um, But we're just going to walk you through our process about how we go about identifying opportunities, how we think about putting these trades on, uh, what insights we get from our dashboards, what they mean. And then I'll walk you through how we actually then risk manage these trades, restructure them, and the sort of considerations and think about how we size them, stuff like that. So if you have have some spare time at 11 a.m. Eastern tomorrow, come and join us. You can sign up at our website for the free webinar. Come and say hello. Uh, You can ask me what you like. And, 11
1: a.m. Eastern 11 a.m.
2: Eastern tomorrow, yeah.
1: Imran, I hate to say this, man, but I feel like that's exactly what a super smart AI would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, there's listen. only
2: one way to find out, Ash. You should, you should come as well. Uh, you're come. invited.
1: Come and try the touring Test on Imran Laka tomorrow at 11 a.m. Uh, listen, guys, this is my final thought for the day. Uh, go and check out the Real Vision crypto gathering. It's a lot of fun and it's free. Uh, so go check it out, realvision.com forward slash gathering. That's realvision.com forward slash gathering. We always have a lot of fun, lots of interactive content there as well. Uh, hopefully, come check us out today, tomorrow for the rest of the week. Really looking forward to you joining us there. That's it for today. Always a pleasure to do this with you, Imran. Thanks for joining us on Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back same time tomorrow, 4 p.m. Eastern time. See you then.
0: Thanks for joining us, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Crane Shares. Learn about their KRBN ETF at craneshares.com forward slash KRBN.